Hello world, it's me, Dennis. Reuven, I've wanted to have this conversation with you since I first heard of you from my producer, Renee Jaworski, and then watching you online. There is so much for us to talk about. Let's start in the present. Let's start in the present. The first time that you meet someone, what is it that you want to know about them? What goes through your mind? You're looking at a 71-year-old. Here you are, a, uh, a South African Indian, uh, Indian ancestry, 27-year-old, looking at a white 71-year-old Mexican-American, but who's white who's white, but because Mexico is really, uh, is not a race. Mexican is not a race. It's a nationality. What do you think about? What goes through your mind when you first meet someone and you go? Uh, You know, know, we couldn't be any more opposite. Uh, (laughs) But it's like, like what what interest, of what interest interest would you have in, is this a political thing? Is this a comedy thing? Is this a white guilt thing? But you're Mexican, so I don't know. Is it like a Mexican white guilt thing? I don't know. This could be complex. <laughs> I know. That's what I was hoping it would be because we just don't know. When we just first meeting, the concept behind the podcast is human beings talking to human beings about the human experience. <clears throat> I want to learn what it's like to be you. Growing up in apartheid, is it apartheid or apartheid? How do you pronounce it? Um, I think you kind of you kind of nailed it with the uh, with the enunciation on the first one. It's uh, it's actually oh, like apartheid. an Afrikaans or Afrikaans if it's Afrikaner word. Uh, right. So apartheid, uh, I believe, is the uh, is is how you would pronounce it with like the Dutch influence or the Afrikaner influence. Exactly. Um, man, to be honest. Uh, Growing, growing up during that time, that was probably actually the happiest uh, time of my life, uh, if, if, if I think about it, because everything was in its perfect little world. You know, I had, like, my family all, uh, you know, living in the same house. I, I grew up in a, uh, in a three-bedroom house uh, with six people. Yes. Uh, so it was myself, uh, my mother, my father, uh, my grandmother lived with us, and my dad's sister, and I had uh, my older sister. Uh, so we all, we all lived in this like three bedroom house and um, everything was like in its perfect little community. The only time I actually noticed a difference was uh, towards the end of apartheid when uh, my father got, uh, he, was, he was the first non-white manager to be promoted uh, in his company's history. Uh, this was before, uh, before the change happened, before Mandela became right. president. So as a result, we had to move to a, uh, to a white area in a different part of the country, and we were the only non-white family like that grew up in this whole area. Wow! And uh, that was that was when I noticed things were different. That was just like, uh, so we, we we moved into this house and it was gigantic. We'd never we'd never seen a house like this. It had a pool. It had like a swing set. Uh, my sister and I had our own rooms. We never I never had my own bed before. We just like what is what has happened? This is in like 1993. Um, and we're in this house, and then we, you know, we went out to see the, like the, you know, uh, in, in the morning, my sister and I went out to see the neighborhood and see the neighbors and see, see, you know, what area we're living in, and we saw a bunch of kids, 
and my sister and I started speaking to them. And granted, English is our first language. We've never spoken sure. any other language. Uh, none of the kids could understand us because we had such a thick South African Indian accent. And this is the first time, this is the period which they called integration. Wow. So we were speaking English and we could sort of like understand them, but they could not understand us. Do, do the accent. Because one of the things that I want, and I, well, I, I encourage anyone around to do is because you are one badass actor. You, your characters are so clearly delineated. Your old Indian man is so different from your, from, from your, uh, from your, uh, American, from, from your, uh, from, from the, the Indians in different parts. I can hear you've really done a lot of heavy lifting on working on your character work on, on, on doing that. So do the, the South African Indian accent for me so I can hear what it sounds like. So that's an Indian accent. You know what? I, I'm not even really sure because I, in in my opinion, I think I speak like a South African Indian person, like the way I'm speaking to you right now. Yeah. This is not my stage voice. This is not like the uh, like my Australian phone voice. It's not any of that. This is this is uh, maybe maybe like a maybe a heavily diluted version, a well-traveled version of the South African Indian accent. Ah, what ah, I'm giving okay. you right now. Okay, perfect. So that, well, that is, you know, because when I saw Renee Zellweger uh, when, won the Academy Award this particular year for, uh, for Judy, and Judy, she was Judy, yeah. Judy Garland, but she's from Texas. And when she goes up and talks in front of the microphone, she just brings her real accent what it is. And it's just that part of Texas of where she's from. She is a Southern belle. So, you know, it's it sort of, uh, you know, she, it, 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 it's a character that's close to the character that's close to home. Yeah. So you, did you, was your family education oriented? Did, did you really get curious early? Did you find these early, you, the early influences that impelled you to performance, that impelled you to writing, that impelled you to looking at this, at this world globally? Yeah. Well, I think the, the, the other thing is that uh, people, people need to understand that uh, apartheid was actually uh, not just a social system. It was very much built into South Africa itself. So how it was like laid out was uh, the white areas. Yeah. Uh, they were generally like sort of near the CBD or near like the beachfront. That was what was considered as, as a white area. Then on those outskirts was what was referred to as Indian or colored. So um, were, were, were the Indians and were the Indians and the Africans uh, from uh, from the Negroid race separated? Yes. So that was like the tears. So you basically it was like a like a color wheel, and the darker you got, the less rights you had, and the further away you were situated from the city. So it was actually built into like a buffer zone. So the whole the whole thing was because the African population uh, was so vastly outnumbered the the white population, and they were the ruling class. They were worried that they could be a revolt. So there was kind of like a buffering zone. So if there was a revolt, then the Africans would essentially move in and attack the Indian and the colored areas, and that would give give enough time for the the whites to be able to get out. And then all the airlifting sort of like areas were kind of like situated around there. Um, even the roads were built up. So they had these military vehicles, which were they were called caspers. 
all the in in the white areas, the military vehicles are can essentially patrol those areas perfectly because the roads are built as such. So everything was like built in very, very specifically. Those areas are closer to hospitals, uh, like close to the, like the good schools. So everything kind of like you, you, you got a you got a piece of the pie. Uh, wow, this is a piece of the pie as as you went along, and that was pretty much in force up until 1994. Right. I mean, it wasn't. And so as, how, yeah. when we talk about like we're, here we are in at the end of March in 2018, the world is we're we're having a global pandemic. Things are not going to be the same on the other side of this as we're going to have it now. Things were not going to be the same on the other side of 1994 as they were on on the uh, on on this side of that. So can can you talk about that experience yeah. and what what happened? Uh, not only just what yeah. happened. I mean, Reuven's experience of what happened. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was uh, I was put into uh, I was the first non-white student in this um, in like a super strict Catholic school, and uh, yeah. So my sister went to like a different. She went to like a private school. Uh, which was like an all-girls school. So I went to the, the like a semi-private school, as, as it were, because that was the only one that was in the area. And you were uh, how old? Seven? I was seven, yeah. I was seven years yeah. old at this point. And um, so it, was, it wasn't too bad. To, to begin with, it wasn't, it wasn't too bad. But as like I started to integrate and as we started to realize, like, it was like a super strict Catholic school. I was like Hindu. So I didn't like grasp the concept. I mean, there's lots of like funny experiences as well. There's like I didn't really grasp the concept of like religious studies. Was like they were actually talking about like Jesus and like Catholic stuff. Like, I had no, I had no idea. Like we wake up in the morning, you get to school, you sing hymns, and you're a kid, so you're just like oh, I was six or seven. So I was like oh, we're singing hymns now. So this is what we're doing, and we know. And then we go to religious studies, and then uh, like very early on, I was banned from religious studies uh, because you had to show up to class with your favorite religious character, right? And so I was like, oh, okay, fair enough. And so I, I come from like a pretty, like, my, my grandmother's like super, super strict Hindu, uh, yes. like religious. And so like everybody showed up with like pictures of like Moses and people showed up with like Jesus and like all these things. And then I show up with a picture of Hanuman, which is a half monkey. The monkey man god. god. Yeah, so I show up with that. And then everybody was just like, you, you've got you've to get out and leave. Like you, this is not, this is not happening. I was just like, it's like, but it's like, it's sort of like a religious studies. They were like, yeah, but you know, you, if you don't believe in Christ, your soul will never be saved. And I'm like, no, there's like, this, I was like, that's not the, there's like, there's like, we keep getting reborn. There's lots of other, so it was a very, things like that happened very, very early on. I was just like, uh, yeah. And then eventually things got difficult in, in, in school because I, uh, I think as I turned like eight and started to, uh, get invited to like school parties like be yeah. like hey so such and such having like your eighth birthday party whatever it is i would get invited to these houses and because my name was reuven they didn't realize that i was non-white uh so i would get invited to these houses and they were just like oh what do you like what do you do uh, like who who are you and then the following i would never get invited again so as that kind of like got around so it, it was interesting to kind of like see kids develop a taste for racism and develop that app like like they were very much socialized into it they were just like because you're you know you're all kids you're all playing your own class and then eventually as you get older and as you start to get integrated into the house you're not you're not allowed to go to the house anymore you don't get invited to the, and so that 
that started to integrate very quickly. And then my parents started to realize this because um, I, I think I, I think there was like, I, from what I can remember, I think I, we started getting lots of I started getting lots of fights at that point, and then we they moved me into like a, a school that was more it was previously like an Indian and colored school, but now was like through integration, so it was a bit more of like a a healthy mix of all the all of the above. Right. Whereas the other school was like very very white. Right. Yeah. Are there? All right, so from the experience of South Africa, are there things that the United States could learn from that experience that, because I, we have, we have a, a, a deep hundreds of year old original sin of slavery, not just that. I mean, when I, I know I told, told this story before, but just to, mm-hmm. to, I grew up in the Jim Crow South, which meant that there was segregation on my end. From the white male privileged side, I saw saw, uh, water fountains that said colored and white. I saw separate movie entrances. I saw, I would ride the trail, the Continental Trailways bus, like Greyhound, from, from, from Victoria to Houston, and then when we got off, the bus was integrated, but when we got off, the waiting room was separate. Yeah. Now, this is, this is me. And, and when, when, when I knew that was wrong, I knew that was there. But when you, when you have, when, if you're a Mexican or in, in my upper middle class uh, room where we have, the Mexicans and, and the African-Americans came to the, black, uh, to the back. Yeah. The back door. The front door was, I mean, and that was just the normal way. It wasn't something that I, that I, as a kid, as I'm growing up, actually uh, even, I knew it was wrong. I knew it was what I did not want to do, but that, that is, it gets baked in when you're a, having yeah, not right. been a, a privileged yeah. white male growing up when I, and you, you may not understand how that gets baked in. I want to know how we can grow through that and, and what, what lessons you can help me to, to, to understand about myself, yeah. about my own growth and, and my own place. And, and I apologize for taking up so much bandwidth on, on, no, on no, this. Okay. I want to know more about you, but, but I wanted to share a little bit with you about me. Yeah. Okay. Well, so funnily enough, we're not that different like South African Indians uh, to the Jim Crow era. Uh, and it's not, you know, like, you know, people look at it and they think, oh, you know, that happened like such a long time ago. It was just like, you know, slavery was abolished 360 years ago. It was, it was, it was a long time. No. It takes a long time for that, like, for that recovery period. You know, it takes, it takes a very, very long time. Um, you know, if, if we want to put that in, in basic terms, uh, this is something, this is not me, by the way. This is, uh, I'm a, if you're familiar with Satguru, um, so he, no, I don't know. I'm not. Yeah. Okay. So he's a, it's like an Indian guy. He's like a, he's like, he's like a, not, not a mystic. He's like a, like a guru, like an enlightened person. Absolutely. But he's also, he's studied in like chemistry, physics, biology. He's just like got a few doctorates. The guy's like both on the scientific level and the spiritual level. Very, very Absolutely. interesting guy. How wonderful. So he, he pertains that, um, if you if you take a cow pro, like a like a cow poke like a cow prod, and you a shock a calf with it, like a like a little like a little cow calf, uh, it will up to seven generations 
of that offspring of calf or cow will be intrinsically afraid of that cow prod. So that, that, that fear is actually baked and it takes seven generations for that calf to actually get over that. So if you want to put that in context of like slavery, that same thing, there's, there's still that sort of like genetic trauma that these people will feel for years, like you know, probably seven generations after that before they can like start to rectify itself. Now, the way this all started, you know, the way the way they actually enabled slavery. So the idea of slavery wasn't something that was a natural human idea. It was something that was actually brought in. And there's the same right. thing for America. So they actually had to send out misinformation to basically let people know they're like, no, actually these aren't actually people. You know, the you know, the genetic science has come out that sort of thing to be like, no, actually, this, the idea of, you know, you actually own this person, they actually had to sell that idea in, into the society. And that's, that's the same thing, you know, what they, what they did was they had to sell that idea into, into the upper class and then to the, to the lower class, they basically had to cut off education. That is how they enabled slavery. So the same thing for now is probably, you know, the same, you know, the, the, the solution you know, is, is the problem, you know, is to actually get education. Education is the, is actually the solution to getting this actually solved. Education yes. on both sides, educating people as to what happened, you know, uh, the people that were affected by it, the people that benefited by it, and obviously the long-term ongoing effects. Acknowledging that and educating people to that fact is the, is, is the first step of, of, of doing anything. Uh, right. So that, that's the first step. And you know, that, that's not too far off as well, because um, 162 years ago, uh, my ancestors were taken as slaves to work the sugarcane plantations in South Africa. So my great-grandfather was taken when he was six years old on the, um, on the ship. There was like a, a few ships that left at that time, southern India. And um, yeah, he, was, uh, he, he worked the sugarcane plantation. And that was basically... Um, a few generations. I mean, I think uh, in South Africa we're only five generations of uh, Indians. So then it's only on 160. It's 163 years ago that we we first sort of landed in in South Africa. But the only difference as to why we're less impoverished is because of education. We had more access to education than our African counterparts living in South Africa at that time. Exactly. Well, I mean, when when I have studied India. When the, the there is a history of mathematics and science and art and and uh, education, I mean, India is an incredibly rich country that we don't see. We may not see that now. Like, for example, I really feel like we're wasting the Persians. Like, yeah. what? I'm, my God, the Persians? Are you kidding me? What the? F I mean, good. God, what are we doing when we could have this rich and the same way with the Indians, you know, the, the, the entire, the, the brilliance of the, of the, of the, the depth of education and the depth of science and math and, and all, of, all of the work is something that we can incor that, that is, has been there for generations upon generations upon generations. Yeah. Usually, one thing I want to tell you is that I don't always ask questions. I just stop talking. 
And if I stop talking, if I stop talking, and I probably and I should have said this beforehand, but hey, anyway, as you get to know me, it's because I've run out to the end of my, I've run out to the end of the sentence, and I'm and I'm asking you, Reuven, please pick it up somewhere or take it someplace else that you'd like to take it. Yeah, sure thing. So, I'd like to know. Um, so a, a bit more. So where, where did you grow up exactly? Which which city and what like? South what, what? Texas. South Texas. Think of along the coast of Texas, about thirty miles in. There was a my great aunt and uncle, who were like my grandparents, uh, worked on a ranch. So it was a thirty-five thousand acre ranch with a lot of oil, gas, and all. And so there was a a store and all that. And then I and then a city called Victoria, about forty thousand people. Uh, a real oil, a lot of oil country around there. So there was this hierarchy of very, very, very rich people and then upper middle class people and then a lot of poor people. Yeah, right. So how did you how did you find me actually? Uh, interesting. The, my producer, Renee Jaworski, yeah. found you. She said, I have run across this guy and I'll have to ask her what her process was. And that would be fun to be able to see. But she said, <laughs> you have, because she knows me and what my yeah. interests are. And my interests are in finding the, the, finding the leading edge people who are, who are pushing the consciousness of humanity. And she you, said, uh, this guy, Reuven, Reuven is the guy you need to talk to. Fair enough. Have you, um, did, did you, did you see my TED talk by any chance yes. on, online? Yes. That, uh, not only do I have it there, but I have, I have notes. Oh, okay. Yeah. I'd, uh, I'd, that, I mean, I'd, just up front, that was probably for me, one of the worst live recordings ever for me doing something on stage. But, uh, yep. anyway, I'd love to, I'd love to hear what you'd, uh, what, what you'd have to say about it. Well, let's see. <clears throat> One of the things that uh, that racism can be used as a barrier and a tool. That yeah. is the that is the I wanted to to dig deeper into that, mm -hmm. uh, into how we can use that. What are the ways that we can talk, yeah. do, work about it better? Mm -hmm. Well, the. The whole thing is that at, at the moment, I mean, if you look at, um, you know, the, if we have to look at something like the Middle East at the moment, people people use that, especially in Australia, as as a barrier. You know, people uh, people don't want to engage with the holidays or acknowledge, uh, you know, acknowledge any of their, you know, any any of their cultural aspects, anything. People are very very anti. Islam, anti-Muslim in this country. It's very obvious, and, that, and sadly, it's even reflected in, uh, in, in some of the prime ministers and, uh, and, and, and the politicians and, and their Absolutely. comments and, you know, outwardly in, in, in their actions. So, um, man, this is, a, this is a hard one to, 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 sort of, uh, to, to sort of answer. I mean, that, that very much, they... And, and the other thing is, I, I suppose they, they use that as a barrier. When they use that as an excuse to be like, well, no, uh, you know, we need to keep them out. You know, they, this, this is horrifying to say, but they ran a, uh, a poll on, uh, on nine, like, like one of the main new, news channels 
uh, to say, you know, should we uh, should we have a uh, Islam ban? Should we should we ban Islam in Australia? And seventy three percent of those voters voted yes. The ones who responded yes, though that's. So how do we rationalize that when we see Prime Minister Modi and having this Hindu-centric policy? Yeah. How does, how does that resonate with your family and like your grandmother, uh, assume, assuming that she's, is she still alive? No, 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 no. All right. Uh, uh, alive in another, in another realm. But, but what, what is, uh, how, how does that resonate? Well, the, the, the thing is, man, like even, even, even in the community that I grew up in, it was, although it was like an Indian community, uh, we were integrated sure. very much into uh, in, in Islam. You know, we had we had a mosque down the road. Uh, you know, during school, uh, you know, we would like kids kids would leave to go to the mosque to do prayers and come back, especially on the Friday. Everything else. I mean, I was uh, when, when I was young, I was very light skinned, and they so they used to think I was also like so. I used to like duck out of school as well with the kids when I was like <laughs> living in the. In, so that was like it was it was fun times. You know, um, even now today, I don't eat pork because you know we didn't cook pork in our neighborhood because like you had like neighbors were muslim so you just like did that out of like mutual respect <coughs> these are you know and, and the whole thing is people now have this idea or this opinion that like you know if you're muslim you're a terrorist or you know you're the enemy and it's just like that's not that's not like that's not that's not actually that's no. not accurate that's not that's that, that's not what it is but People genuinely have that belief, but also, sure. you know, so how do we get ourselves? All right, let me ask you about that, because that's where I want to ask we're, we're talking about using racism as a tool to be able to, to, to talk about that, because I I can very clearly see when people say that I don't see race or I don't or, or that racism, that all the problems of racism are over with. I say, well, if that were true, why do the why don't the prison the the w because it's been scientifically proven that people uh, that people break the laws in every race about the same percentage, and yeah. if that were true, why were why are the prisons so racially out of whack? Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And if it were true, if also that were true, why doesn't the government the representatives more reflect what our racial uh, the racial dynamics and the gender dynamics of the, uh, and they don't. And so if it were, if it were over, those two things would be much more, much more balanced. See, it's, um, the, I mean, obviously there was an initial bias that would have happened. I mean, at that time would have been like the war on drugs, uh, you know, like, you know, obviously after, after the, in the Jim Crow era, essentially they just wanted free labor uh, and so, you know, obviously things were slanted in the wrong direction for African-Americans. But then the problem is those systems were developed on that information and that information was originally biased. So then that has just been integrated so deeply into that system and it's just been built in that now you don't even understand. So, you know, the problem is we're going to face the same problem with AI when, you know, when we start saying, oh, you know, we're going to take away the human bias and we're going to feed these machines with all this information. But the problem is, the information is already racially biased. So now you're going to have the machines that are also going to be imposing those same racial biases based on historical data, based on, well, you know, 
So it's just it's 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 hard to break that cycle. You need unbiased or exactly. very information. It'd be interesting to see. It would be interesting to see because I do a, you know, I th I think about you know when when what if AI woke up and said, "Who you call an artificial?" <laughs> yeah. It's just not because my 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 senses is that it's already awakened. Yeah. But would I know? Does a does an ant particularly care that we're having this conversation? It may be beyond my ability to understand what alive is. It may be something larger than. I mean, I look at the hive of Wikipedia. How yeah. does the hive of Wikipedia keep itself alive? It's being fed. Yeah, I see. By volunteer well, workers at, at at all times. Is there consciousness there? I see. Well, I think the biggest. Uh, the biggest problem that we can face, and I think, I mean, it, it's it's a good analogy that you just like, you know, does does an ant care about what we're thinking? You know, that, that, that's a good analogy. But it's not the lower uh, intelligence entities or beings that we should be worried about. It's the higher intelligence beings that we should should be worried about, because traditionally speaking, historically, whenever a higher intelligence species or race has encountered a lower intelligent species it has never been better for the lower intelligence it's never, it's never it never works out so all right so so far and I, you have to tell you i have to tell you reuben i am an optimist i'm wired optimist yeah and i believe i i deeply believe that that we could program and and are already programming in that whatever this higher intelligence is it's going to also have a higher level of compassion it's also going to have a higher level of eq and it's also going to so it's going to be a a uh a higher it's gonna be a higher level not just a higher level of oh i want to dominate everything below me and and own it mm -hmm. i'd like to think so um but at the same time they and maybe maybe we just haven't figured it out because the other thing is how do you how do you measure intelligence when you create something you know, you, you know, <laughs> you know, you exactly you know, like everything in this world, everything that creates or exists in this particular realm exists in either the dichotomy of male or the duality of female, right? So the same thing, the same parallel works for good and evil, you know? That particular being or the particular robot or whatever it is has just as much potential for good as does evil, right? Just in the same way that it needs to exist in a way of male or female. So it's going to take on a particular form of characteristics. Now, the issue is, and, and they did this, like, I think they did this a few years ago. They put in two uh, artificially intelligent, like, programs into, like, a simulation. They put them yep. both in there. And then they, just to see what they would do, you know, how they would interact with each other, what would happen. Within minutes, they were speaking a language that the other computers and the humans and stuff like that couldn't understand because it knew it was being monitored. Within minutes, it was, it was speaking this brand new language, which immediately, you know, it, it knows it's being observed, 
it doesn't like the fact that it's being observed. So it creates a language that can't be encrypted and can't be understood by anyone else. And so they shut it down straight away. They're just like, All right, the only things? the only place I'm going to to uh, argue with you on, and I don't mean argue with you, or the point I'd like to consider is is that what if the particular language that they developed was like twin speak? You know, when you have twins and they develop their own language. It's just a convenient, rather than it being because they don't like being observed, it's just a convenient way for them to to communicate at a deeper level than something that than the language that you and I could understand. That's a good point. That's a that's a very good point. But at the same time, it's it's it it, it is scary. I'm not. I, yeah. it, listen, I've I've done a lot of reading on on AI, and you are absolutely right. We don't know. We don't know. And as a matter of fact, we already have machines that are learning. We already have machines that can learn. So the 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 whatever it is, the rabbit is out. Uh, I mean, the it's out of the box. You can't. We're not going to be able to stop whatever it whatever it is we might be able to mitigate but but i'm not there, there is something something amazing uh going on and let me ask you this in your writing what are you writing about currently what how do you develop because you're I, in, in the work that I have been doing, one of the things that I loved about, about your work, and I also looked at some of your other stand-up work, is that you learned, how did you learn to wait for the laugh and to let it run all the way through and let it get to its place before you? Because I, it's masterful. I wanted, I wanted, when I grow up, I want to be like you. I want to <laughs> use you as, a, because it was so masterful the way you let every single piece before you brought that back. How did, how did you develop that skill? Um, I think it's just something you, you get with just years of stage time. Um, the other thing is when you, when you write the, when you write the bit or you write the joke, Usually by the time you've heard it or by the time it's on stage, I've done that like 10, 15, 20 times sometimes. And I've, I've worked out the little kinks. Uh, I've, I've, I've looked at the little nuances with uh, somebody that like one of the comedians that I'm touring with or one of the guys that's in the house. Who's also, I mean, I also live with comedians. So, you know, I, we, we live this, we breathe it. You know, I, I spend eight to nine months a year on tour. Um, you know, I, uh, every year we go to, we go to Scotland, the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, uh, which is the biggest. Huge. Or that, that is like, that is like the, that's like Valhalla. I mean, that's it is, big. It is, yeah. Um, you know, it's been going for 150 years. You know, there's, um, Scotland, man, Scotland is, 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 is another beast unto itself. You know, there's, um, yeah, you, if, if, if you've ever been to the festival, it's like on the bucket list of life. I don't know if the festival's still going to be happening after this after this whole virus thing but uh to be perfectly honest and i'll say this to anybody out there you absolutely must do on the checklist of life go to the edinburgh fringe festival in scotland it is it is the absolute best their shows going in from 10 o'clock in the morning till four o'clock in the morning you know uh every single potential space that there could be a venue 
there's a venue. There's a little stoop. Somebody set up a stage and they put a tent in there and that's a pop-up venue for the month and they're serving beers and there's somebody like playing the violin or like doing some stand-up or there's like a juggalo. There's, there's something. There's something going on. Uh, the population of the city, um, I think it goes up to five times its population. I think it's like it almost quadruples or more than quadruples over that time. Uh, it is just... Basically, Scotland is, is something completely... People wouldn't People wouldn't go home if the bars didn't close. I've never seen more beer consumed in my whole entire life. And, this, and you know, the, the Scottish, they handle it. They, they handle their drink and they just, they move around as if nothing's going on. And they just, it's, it's crazy. You know, you'll, you'll have a packed house at like at, at 11 a.m. for like a, like a really random show. And people are willing to like, people are drinking and people are having a great time. People are there to enjoy the festival and see what you've got to say. Uh, it's the most... I've never felt more embraced in my whole entire life. People are just excited. How wonderful! It. Yeah, it's it's the it's 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 the best, and there's there's everything. And you don't even even if you don't necessarily have like money to go and check out the big shows, um, you know, there's the free fringe, which I you know I do I do three or four shows in the free festival, and uh, you you go in and these shows literally you know you're you're turning people away. You know, we're turning away 40, 50 people a night. People are lined up an hour, two hours. Beforehand to come check out your show. It's a free show. You know, people pay what they want at the end. But you know, we're walking away with like pretty decent money at the end of the at the end of each night because you do such a good show. You know, the the barrier to entry is is super low. People mm-hmm. check out the show, they have a good time, and then they want to give you they want to give you some money. They want to they want to buy you a drink. They want to sure. they want to hang out with you. So it's um, it's it's such a it's such a good it's 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 such a it's such a difference because I mean the average attendance for a comedy show. And the paid Edinburgh Fringe Festival is four seated customers per show. That's the average. And, and we're on the other side doing the free fringe, making like serious money because people are paying you in pounds. People are giving you cash. You know, we have little card machines. People are just hitting like the tap and go on the credit card or whatever it is. So we're making a lot and we're basically turning people away. You know, you, you, you couldn't get enough. Whereas, um, some people are really, really struggling, but once again, it's it's much more of a community vibe in the free festival. You know, it's, I, it's local. exactly, and so people, so you end up getting more. Like although it's a free show, you end up getting more money because it's a free show, and it's it's less of a corporate entity. The pubs are on board, you know, the artists are on board, uh, you know, the the customers. Are, and the thing is, it's it's a lot of it's a lot of locals, and that's that's where you really that that's where you feel like Scotland because of the the paid fringe. It's a lot of English people. It's a lot of foreigners. It's a lot of tourists because they don't really oh, know anybody. Yeah. What you want? If you want to play to Scotland, Scotland is Scotland's amazing. It's 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 the only country in the world where the people think they're funnier than the comedian on stage, and they're not afraid to tell you. They're not afraid to tell you about it while you're like it's just it's 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 it's, it's you, you gotta you gotta have your it's like razor sharp wit, the the, oh. the best banter, the best crowd work you could ever. So you you've also gotta you you gotta have your wits about you as a comedian to to perform in Scotland. Because if you're not funny, they'll tell you about it straight away. If they're not happy, they'll tell you about it. So you gotta, yeah, you gotta have a few different gears as a comedian in Scotland. So you, as a performer, it's it's a it's a great experience. You know? It's a high wire act, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, um, I, you know, for me, it, it it may sound like a lot, but you know, I probably within the month, I'm I'm on stage maybe five, maybe six times a day. Uh, at the end of the month, it's probably like 120, 130 gigs. 
but that's nothing. You know, one of my one of my business partners, uh, shout out to Kyle Legacy, uh, he he set the world record last fringe for the most amount of gigs done in one month. He did two hundred and thirty six shows in one month. Holy smoke! That he, is. It was incredible. He was doing up to 14 gigs a day sometimes. Kids shows at 11 a.m., you know, yeah. <laughs> late night. You know, you're just like literally waking up every three hours to go to get to be on stage and to run to a venue or to run to a show. Uh, but that's Scotland. You can do that in Scotland. Oh, how wonderful. And, and do, you, do, you, do you sit down, when you do character, do you sit down and listen to them, how how do you because you can just you can just talk about Edinburgh and you drop into the brogue and I hear it in your voice and I hear uh, I because you you have this this extraordinary ear. How does yeah. that? Um, I, I don't know. I, the thing is, not a lot of comedians have that. No that's shit. Not a, that's not a, that's not a thing that. Um, and I never I. To be honest, I never ever thought I was going to be a comedian. It never, uh, it never. I'm not, although stand up was my first full time job. I got signed when I was 16 in high school. Yeah. Um, I never, uh, I never thought, even up until I did the actual like show, and uh, to, to the minute when I got signed to like this this agency, pretty much I got signed almost straight away after the after the show. An agent came up to me and they were like, "We think you're fantastic. We think that you should, uh, you know, be on TV." And a year later, I was on TV. Um, I always thought that I was going to be an actor. I, um, I started doing, um, I started doing musical theater actually of all things, uh, in Why? high school. Why of all things? Uh, I, I was, uh, I had a big mouth in high school. I was, uh, I was very, uh, I wouldn't say I was like, I was, I wasn't naughty. I was disruptive. I was a very disruptive student. That's what I was. I was very loud. Uh, I was very funny. I was the class clown. So it was uh, it was challenging to teach me in high school, and as a result, I'd get in trouble a lot. So I uh, I think one day I was doing like a, a dean's detention, which is like a uh, an, an extra an extra worse detention if you're like really bad or whatever. And I was doing this dean's detention, and uh, this particular teacher, uh, he was the one that actually issued me the detention, and he didn't want to see me in the class. Like he was just like it just happened. That, like I would have to do this one and it was in the class and he was just like, I don't want to see you here. Why don't you make yourself useful? Why don't you go to the drama department? You know, they're building, they're building some set, uh, like they're doing set construction at the moment for this, for this play that they're doing, go down there and, um, and help out, help out with the, um, help out with the set. So I started doing that and uh, they'd already had enough people and they'd already like built up the set. And so, uh, the teacher decided to like try and embarrass me and he was just like, you know what? You know, why don't you why don't you sign up? Why don't you sign up to this play? And uh, you know, this is this is what you're gonna do. Like, I don't want to see your attention. You're gonna be doing this play uh, just to embarrass me. It was like a musical. Uh, but yeah, I I flourished. It was uh, it was tons of hot girls in this play. Uh, it was you know it was like it was like perfect. It was just like personality fit. And then uh, yeah, then I was just doing drama from then on. And then it just somehow mutated into stand up. And then that stand-up mutated into television, and then still doing stand-up. Yeah. Will you? Uh, one of the things that I want to, if if you will ever deign to do another conversation like this, uh, I would I would really like to follow both follow your career and to know that. But I would love to know how you dealt 
with the drug testosterone when it began to seep into your brain when 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 the gland began to to soak into you how how did that uh impact you and how did that shift both your thinking and acting and and how how did you deal with that because it's a major it's a major drug yeah um well, I think the thing was that was the testosterone was kind of like fueled straight away into the into the into the acting. That was kind of like when it really started to. So you like, had like, an outlet. Into, you had an outlet uh, for it rather than rather than it just congealing into a. No, actually, uh, before that, I I was uh, before being an actor. I just I mean, that that also came up very suddenly. I only really sort of like thought about being an actor and that sort of stuff when I was about 15. Uh, but prior to that, I was a, um, I was a pro athlete. Uh, at 16, I was uh, signed by Adidas uh, to the national demonstration team. Uh, wow, of, of rugby? No, for martial arts. For what? For martial arts. I was uh, for Taekwondo. Yeah. Got uh, it. So I was... Um, I've been training from the time I was probably like four or five years old, and um, I now I mean, I mean not not straight away not in high school, but I, I now I have three black belts. I, I ran two clubs. I had 150 students. Uh, I used to do like tours with like board breaks and stuff like that. We used to do tournaments. I used to ref. Uh, we used to take women's self defense classes. We used to go on these like martial arts camps. We used to like take school. Uh, school camps, we used to do all, I was, I was like super involved, that's all I pretty much, that's all I did up until I was like 15, until enter, enter drama and theater, and then I was still doing all of this up until, um, yeah, in fact, I had no choice because I got a, I got a, I got a fully paid scholarship after high school um, study, to study whatever I wanted, but that was on the basis that I continued the martial arts and I continued doing stand-up and I continued pursuing um, stuff on television. Um, what have I been in? Uh, I was the poster boy for Capital One credit cards in 2007. Uh, that was some of my North American work. Uh, I used to be on New Zealand's number one TV show. Yep. Uh, uh, if this is just beginning, see, he, he, here's the thing. Just where, where you are right now. Yeah. And when, when we re- uh, gain the part of being able to build and make new television. This there is no question in my mind that should you want to do, take some acting acting roles and some com comedic role that you're going to get them. Uh, I know talent, Reuven. I know who you are. I can see you. I can I can see just in, in, in the work that you've done, and, and if that's what you want to pursue. So with all of this, yep. what's on at this time in your what What are you looking at? What are you looking at of the things that the, uh, of the places that you're going to be placing your energy over the next few months? Yeah, sure. Well, I mean, obviously the uh, the virus has vastly changed the landscape of uh, of what we're doing. Uh, of how how we consume media and how how people are behaving, you know. Uh, so I, rather than be on the back foot, I mean, there's there's a few different ways. A lot of a lot of our comedic colleagues are just like, look, uh, just take the welfare for what you can do at the moment. Uh, keep your head down. 
make make some videos, do some writing, and be prepared. You know, like you know, for for when for when it comes back, because when it comes back, it's going to be big. But that could be never. I I, I kind of don't think that. I think that once everything comes back, yes, there'll be a big burst. But then a lot of people will be like, well, I don't really need to leave my house very much because everything is kind of formed around that convenience of like staying at home. And people are going to kind of like be a little bit more, the social distancing is going to have like the hangover of the hangover of that, that effect, the hangover of the social distancing. Oh, it, it is. I so, so agree. Uh, so the other thing is that people have the ability to create content. A lot of comedians have the ability to create content. A lot of them don't have the ability to create a platform in which to show that content. They don't have an ability to monetize uh, or be able to say, how, how can I organize this in a particular way? So I've been busy working on a website for the last couple of weeks. Uh, it's called coronaviruscomedy.com.au. Uh, so I'm creating a platform for all the comedians that have basically all the, all the work has been canceled. Melbourne Comedy Festival is canceled. Sydney Comedy Festival is canceled. Everything's been canned. They have nowhere to go. They've got nothing to do but time. So I've just uh, I've set up this website. It just launched yesterday, actually. Um, and I've gotten some comedians from the UK. I've gotten comedians from the US. Uh, I've done articles on them. We've done, like, meme articles. Uh, some of them have created videos. Uh, we're creating uh, merchandise, which should go live probably tomorrow. And we're donating the proceeds to coronavirus aid. Uh, because right now there's the stuff that's going on that's just like, you know, you've got hospital workers that are using 24-hour masks for seven days at a time. And that's, that kind of stuff is really going to hurt us in the future. Uh, if, if a hospital staff gets sick, that has an effect, like a long-lasting effect on everyone. So, you know, money for hand sanitizer. You know, there's, there's all these like really, really dumb things that basically aren't going to fund themselves. Yes, people are hurting, but we kind of need to get in the front foot with this. So we're going to create T-shirts and merch. Uh, we're going to have like percentage of the, the views, like a donation system to send to coronavirus aids, coronavirus comedians. Uh, yeah, that's the, that's, that's the whole plan with this. So uh, people are creating content. I'm, I'm, I've got the ability to create a platform and a facility. So that's what I've done. And so I could put my comedy on. I could put myself first at this point, but... I think it's more important for the industry to kind of like survive at this point. Uh, so this is this is what I've created. This is what I've got in mind. I don't know if it's actually going to work, but that was kind of like what I projected in my mind. It's just myself and the, the guys at work and my business, Laugh Mob, uh, what we've, I've kind of convinced them to get on track with this. So I'm hoping it's the right move. I'm hoping people get on board with it. But, you know, I, who knows? Well... <clears throat> I, um, the one thing that I, that I, I want to make sure and do something and that's what you're doing. You're doing something. And what you, what, one of the things we learned, just like when we put all that money into the, into the space race, uh, to go to the moon, there were so many unintended consequences that came out of that, of learnings and that we could not have done if we did not make that investment, which it feels like the same thing with you what yeah. you're doing here you would not learn this the kinds of things that you're building what you're doing the, what are you how you're testing reuven 
you would not learn were you not doing this. I'm very footwork oriented. I believe in footwork, not results. Let's yeah. do the footwork. Let's see what we can do. Let, I have no idea what what's going to be right. All I know is that I admire you for doing it and we will certainly put it on the podcast. It was, we put the bottom, make yeah. sure that, that, that there is a link to that, uh, okay. as you, you sent me is in the last couple of minutes, since I've taken up so much of, of your time, uh, what would you like to talk about in the last couple of minutes that we haven't, that we haven't shared about? Um, I, I kind of felt that you you were leaning towards talking about spirituality. I feel like that was something that you kind of wanted to talk about, maybe. Oh uh, boy, do uh, I! I I am. We 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 have been so influenced by India, in the in the the mystical wing, in the in the in the um, in Christianity, like I'm sure in Hinduism or in 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 Islam or anything. You go from the from the most fundamental to the uh, to the uh, metaphysical, and in yeah. the metaphysical realm of Christianity was what I grew up in, and so they yeah. were deeply influenced by the East, by by the by the yogis, the yogis that came and 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 put a lot of a lot of the the work that is done about Maya and the illusion and understanding a lot of the uh, of the, what comes from deeply deeply uh uh from roots there so so yeah. that's what my and so i i'm i'm very interested in in knowing how you have uh come to relate to a power greater than you mm-hmm. uh however that however that senses however you sense it I, it's bigger than what i could wrap my mind around so it's difficult to yeah. talk about it but you can tell me how it has impacted you or learned and grown yeah yeah sure um so my, my grandmother was like like I said, my grandmother was very very uh, religious, and uh, I had that influence from a very young age. My, my family is quite religious, um, in like a in like a spirit world kind of like uh, explanation. When people would have like spiritual problems in the community, they would go and see my parents, and my parents would help facilitate uh, people with a spiritual sickness or whatever was going Absolutely. on. So my parents were involved. Uh, ironically, though, my parents are very scientific. Uh, my, my I, I do not like, see those uh, two as as as. I think you can have them both. Yeah, um, so that was uh, that was my my, my initial background. Um, as well as my grounding in spirituality, I would say that uh, where I kind of like really developed my higher consciousness was through martial arts. Uh, that was something, just the, the rigidity, the training, the meditation, uh, the, the, the understanding of wholeness, energy, all that stuff, I 100% attribute to uh, the Asian martial arts, 100% Japanese, uh, you know, like Buddhism, all that stuff, fully not even realizing it, not even, not even understanding, just, just training for years and years and years. And then I'm just like basically realizing later, I was like, oh, wait a minute. The whole purpose of martial arts is for spiritual enlightenment and to expand your, your consciousness. And then all of a sudden you're just like, God, oh, it's, 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 it's happened. So this, this is a, a realization that took me about 10 or 12 years to kind of grasp. And I was like 16 or 17. I was just like, oh, this has actually been like actually quite a, quite a spiritual journey 
more than a much more than a physical journey uh, than anything else. And then then on the flip side, uh, I went. I felt like I went so far in martial arts with the training and the the dieting and the meditations and the fasting and everything. I went so far in one direction that I touched spirituality. That's what I felt. And that was my true understanding. That was just before I left New Zealand. Um, you know, I'd, I'd, in, through meditation, I connected with higher spirits. Uh, you know, managed to like jump onto the astral plane. You know, I, I saw snippets of the future via the astral plane through meditation. And I was like, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm waking up and I'm going to Australia. And that was, that was literally it. I, I literally woke up one morning and I was like, oh, I got all these flashes of me being in the, sit, the city. It looked like Sydney. I met all these people. It happened over the space of like two months. And I was like, no, I'm just going. I just woke up and booked a flight and went. Uh, and then so, sort of like was training, but not as, uh, not as like sort of like religiously as I was uh, when I was living in New Zealand. And then I started like delving into comedy more. And then I ended up meeting, um, the, what they have is in, in, in Australia, they call it a bush doof, which is basically like a, uh, like a concert. And they have it out like in the, in, in the forest. And there's a whole bunch of hippies. And there's music. And there's comedy. And it's usually quite small. Like, like Burning Man. Burning Man. Yeah, similar. But like they have lots of little ones in lots of little areas all, all over at different times of the year. And most of the time, this is done on indigenous Australian land, and there's usually indigenous elders uh, that reside there. And I, in Australia, all the time get mistaken for Aboriginal. It happens all the time. Uh, and so what would happen is we'd go to these, I like, ended up doing, you know, you're doing comedy and you get booked for these festivals because it's, like it's like a cool music festival. And they're like, hey, come out and check out this thing. You'll get a VIP pass to bring, bring some of your friends. So it's just a great weekend, and you, you know you don't really get paid anything, but you you go and be a part of this experience, and you be be a part of this community. And a lot of the time, we'd walk in, and then the indigenous elders would call me in because they'd look at me and they're just like they're trying they're trying to figure out like which tribe I'm from or which clan, and then they'd like call me in, and then I would have like a spiritual experience with them where we you know you drink some like acacia, uh, which is like the Australian version of DMT. And then you go on a little journey and then you meet spirit guides and you, they, they take you through a little thing and they tell you about the forest and they tell you about it. I mean, I've had some ridiculous information from some of these spiritual elders going, going on these trips. I met this, um, I met this one, this is a crazy story. I met this one lady uh, who was telling me it was at this, uh, it was like in between Melbourne and, uh, and, like, and Sydney, that was, that was where this festival was. And there's some indigenous elders, and they, they pulled me in. And she was telling me about, um, are you familiar with songlines? Yes, of course. Are you familiar with songlines? So that, that's well, how... Well, I mean, the book, yeah. Yeah, so that, that's how all the information uh, in indigenous Australian culture was passed on, was through songlines. And so obviously when, like, you know, uh, the, the British col colonies came in, some of those songlines were lost forever. So she was telling, and I was just like, so what do you mean? She's just like, so the song lines relate to everything. So she was telling me how they could tell you what the weather was going to be like 800 kilometers in each direction based on the clouds, based on the clouds, the formation of the clouds. It's just like, well, that's, I mean, obviously if the clouds are thick, then it's going to be rainy. Obviously there's not very many, many clouds it's going to be like, and she's like, no, not at all. So each particular cloud pattern 
actually has a name. It actually has a character. And each one of these characters interact with each other in the song. And depending on how they interact with each other, there's, the song basically outlines each one of the characteristics and how each one will pertain to a different weather pattern and how that relates. And it basically relates to their emotions. It relates to how they, uh, their relationships with each other, whether it's raining, whether it's hailing, whether it's storming, whether it's dusty. Uh, and it basically, and pretty accurately as well, tells you exactly what the weather's going to be like in each direction. So that's just information like that that they have that was just like completely wiped out and lost. That you know, there's, you know, there's like such a small like snippet of that information that's left. But also, that, that shouldn't be, the finger shouldn't be pointed at the British. The British, the British actually, in honesty, uh, I only found this out recently. I was reading a book that's called The Fatal Shore. And um, it basically outlines when the British colonists came into Australia. Now, for the first, like, 50 years, it was almost impossible to live in Australia. The British colonists, pretty much, they needed the indigenous Australians to survive. It, was, it would have been absolutely impossible for them not to live in harmony with the indigenous in order to survive. There was just, there's no, there's no question about it. So people that come in and think that the British colonists came in and just murdered everybody, that's not actually entirely true. That's not actually what happened. What happened was, there was lots of uh, prisoner colonies in Australia as well, and that was obviously the people that committed crimes, whatever, I mean, to whatever level, they were criminals. Now, at that time, the, um, the indigenous Australians had more rights than the, prison, uh, the prisoners that were like, living on the prison colonies in Australia. And so you had the, the, basically the officers that were serving, then you had the indigenous Australians, and then you had... The, the prisoners. And so sometimes the sentences weren't that long or sometimes it wasn't necessarily in like a, a maximum security prison. It may have been them serving, like working on a farm, working on a plantation. Exactly. Like now, because it was such harsh living conditions in those first 50 years, um, the government kind of realized that like, wait a second, in like five years we might starve. So we've actually got like a serious problem with people like mortality rates disease, uh, having enough food, having enough labor. So what they started to do is they were like, well, hey, look, if you're serving a sentence, why don't you just come over here and serve the sentence somewhere else and you can do something here for two years instead of serving five years, breaking rocks sure. or whatever. Like. So what they did was they sent a bunch of um, prisoners, armed them up with guns. They said, hey, look, there's actually a whole lot of kangaroos out here, which we can eat. It's a great source of protein. There's thousands of them. So here's a whole lot of guns, here's a whole lot of ammunition. Go out, shoot these, uh, shoot these kangaroos, come back with pelts, come back with the meat, we'll give you money, we'll give you more ammunition, and you go out and you, you, know, you just basically collect as much as you can and you go for it. So when these guys were doing this, they kind of realized, they're like, hey, wait, wait a second, we can actually live freely out in the wilderness without anybody, without having to answer anyone, we can just kind of live here for as long as we want with our guns, with our food, and kind of like do whatever we want to do. So they were going out and hunting, hunting all these kangaroos. The indigenous Australians weren't happy about this because they had very particular migration patterns and very particular plans about when they would kill them, how they would eat them, where they would graze, how it all work. So they were like very much connected to the land with the animals. So when they came in and started killing these kangaroos and like, you know, in, in massive amounts. They're just like, well, wait, you can't, you can't be doing this. So that's when arguments started. 
when arguments started, uh, I think a, the, one of the original articles in, like, there's basically journal articles in this book, um, was these indigenous guys caught a bunch of Australian, uh, caught a bunch of guys hunting kangaroos and you know, basically beat the shit out of it, got them to a fight. These guys came back with a whole bunch of guns and just murdered a whole lot of these people. And that's when things just got out of control because they didn't know what was going on in the bush. They had no idea this was going on in the bush. They were just giving them guns, giving them ammunition, and they had no idea that there was this like, great amount of people living in these areas and then also were still propagating disease. So a lot of the indigenous Australians were killed by disease being spread by people getting of course, the immunities and they, they didn't have the same immunities the herd yeah. immunities that the that the europeans had so it, ironically it wasn't the british in this case it was the second yeah. generation australian prisoners and and this and 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 this uh, what a great place to to it is because the learnings that we have what we're doing we had much with First Nation here in the United States had had very much the same many of the same experiences that when 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 the Europeans colonized uh, the colonized here. So so we we had that. One of the things that I want to want to leave this on, Reuben, is that <clears throat> yes, I am wired optimist. However, what I see in you is that you are a doer. And you are here to do. You are here to do things and to help to, to figure out ways that we can elevate the consciousness of the planet. And some of it is elevated through humor, but it's a lot deeper than that, because you you run what runs through you, and what you've cultivated and you've worked you've worked is something is something profound. I want to tell you how grateful I am to have met you at this time in your journey, as young as you are and as much as you are doing, because this is, um, at 71, I have no idea whether I'm going to be waking up tomorrow. I honestly don't. You'll be surprised that when, they may have done all kinds of medical changes and, and figured out things that we couldn't. But in mine, my death is very close to me. It's much closer than it's ever been. And I know, having meeting, met you, there is some wonderful things that are going on on the planet. And I'm so glad. I'm just so glad that you're that you're you're giving it you're giving it this shot and when i say do you namaste i mean that in a i mean that in a, i have studied that word and i have yeah. studied what it means and how it is and and i say, so i say that with the depth of my soul and understanding uh, and having the gratitude of getting a chance to have met you namaste to you too Dennis. all right namaste